HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. And welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And uh, thank you for listening. This is the 150th episode. That means I've been doing this for almost three years now. Joe and I figured out the math. Um, but I couldn't be happier to celebrate it with something that really kind of is exactly why I started this uh, show. Somebody who is working with a subject who was foremost the amalgam of food and art. Sarah Suzuki, thank you for being on. So you're the curator of the Dita Roach Show at the Museum of Modern Art, and I was lucky enough to do a little guided tour with you last week. And again, I, I couldn't be more tickled to have seen his work and experienced that show, which if you haven't gone yet, it's up till June 24th. June 24th. It's a must. It's just, it's just mind-blowing how angry and sad a man, as Dieter wrote, may have been. <laughs> he can make such touching and, and kind of conceptually beautiful work. How did you first get attached to him as a subject? Oh, to Dieter. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good question. There's something I think um, very psychologically complex about Dieter wrote as an artist. You see it in a lot of the work, as you mentioned. You know, these ideas in which jealousy and dislike are somehow merged into one. And I think it's something that a lot of us can see in a way in ourselves and the world around us. Um, the reason I first came to wrote though, is because my specialty is really works on paper. When you look at the history of works on paper, in particular in the 20th century, and you think about who really pushed this thing, who really was doing something 
totally outside the box with it? The answer is, to me, Dieter Rode. And he's an artist that I think is pretty well-known in European art historical circles. Less known here, I think, because the work is a bit of an octopus. It goes in a lot of different directions. It doesn't always look the same. Um, and so there was a desire on my part to try to bring this guy to an American audience. Again, for these reasons, that he really pushed he pushed what you could do with these formats. And I think a lot of artists today are feeding off of what he what he did in from the 60s on. Swiss-born, lived in Germany. He was kind of nomadic and uh, um, a lone wolf at the same time, too. What was it about his life, his amalgamation of, of those experiences that led him to start creating these books? Well, I think he was, in a way, honestly, I think, Michael, he was born for it. I mean, as you mentioned, he was born um, in Germany, went to Switzerland as like a young teenager. It was during World War II, and he essentially was living on his own. Um, he was living in a boarding house. Family wasn't there, but there were other exiles there. There were poets, there were artists, there were actors, and I think he was in this kind of very heady artistic environment. Um, and from the time he was 13, he was kind of writing his own poetry, he was making his own work. So there was just something in him, that kernel of kind of artistic growth was in there from a very young age. And he was really a self-taught guy. He didn't go to art school, he didn't go to university, but spoke multiple languages and was an autodidact. I mean, really t made the effort to learn everything he needed to know, to be a total expert in a lot of things. We're talking about how to temper chocolate. We're talking about how to work an etching press, how screen print works. But he accumulated all of that expertise really in an effort to then undermine what you're supposed <laughs> to do with it. Like rather than make it traditionally perfect, like the connoisseur would come in and say, oh, that is beautiful. He accumulated all of this knowledge to basically subvert the whole thing. Well, let's talk about he un how he undermined books. Uh, and we'll talk about food in a little bit. But the deconstruction of what is book by... I mean, making them simple flat files, too, rather than bound I yeah. mean, was the first step. But how did it go further? Well, so this is one of the things I like to say about Rote, which is that he's kind of the inventor, in a way, of a format that I think has been really productive for artists in the last hundred years, and that's the artist book. And an artist book is something that's not designed to reproduce artwork or to illustrate artwork or to describe artwork. An artist book is the artwork. And so Rote called these like-minded communities of things. And for him, a book didn't need a text. It didn't need a binding. It didn't need a page sequence. The pages didn't need to have an orientation. There was no top and no bottom necessarily. So it was this incredibly loose experience, sometimes without any language whatsoever, um, but one that really becomes a collaboration. He kind of sets this vocabulary up, and then he hands it over to the reader or the viewer to then do with it what they will. So in theory, every time someone picks up this object, turns the pages, shuffles them, turns them around, it can be an entirely unique experience, different from the person that looked at it before and different from the one that's going to come after. And I think there's something in that combination of kind of direction and collaboration that's really very special. Even though you say there is no language, there's iconography. Um, oh, yeah. And I, I'm going to keep on equating this back to food, obviously, mm -hmm. and they're going to merge at some point in this career. But... When you look at dining today, uh, a lot of even molecular gastronomy, even even hot cuisine, uh, you see these things that are supposed to signify something else, right. like 
this is a piece of lamb, but it's not a lamb. So it's almost set up in that same sense. It's absolutely right. There's something very present in Rote's work that I call the, uh, the verbal visual equivalency. So it's the idea that you can use a picture to make language or you can use language to make an image. There is this really kind of very open back and forth. And it's something that happens for Rote very early on in the 1950s. He's working with this guy who was one of the kind of founding fathers of concrete poetry. And so this is a form in which, you know, traditional poetic concerns of word choice and syncopation become almost secondary to the way the poem looks on the page. So you have this idea in which you're pulling language apart and using it not necessarily to make words or meaning. Maybe it's making sound. Maybe it makes an image the way it's laid out on a page. So there is this idea that things go back and forth and one thing can stand in for another, the way I guess your lamb could be not a piece of lamb. (laughs) But I mean, again, there still was a system to it, uh, so much so that he started writing recipes of his artwork. Can you explain that a little more? He did. Well, now we get into the culinary. So (laughs) It wasn't that hard. It (laughs) it wasn't. It's right there. It was at the precipice. I mean, even before, when you were showing me the postcards on the wall of what was it, the Icelandic cruises or Icelandic... There were also uh, culinary postcards from the royal... Oh, there were royal baking products, which is, that's a really interesting thing, actually. So anyway, what you're referring to is the fact that Rote often referred to the studio as kind of a kitchen in which he was making artistic rather than culinary delights. And he, he did kind of revel in this idea that you'd go in and mix things together and make a bit of a mess and something really wonderful, fully baked, would come out of it. In the end, but he did very clearly call some of what he was doing recipes, and you can find them um, sometimes tucked inside the projects. There'll be a description, you know, print until you can't print anymore, print it over again, print it one more time, print it until you can't stand it. And he called (laughs) these kind of step-by-step processes recipes, and the recipes were something that played into his own work in many ways, not only his invented recipes, but also actual printed recipes that he um, found and altered and used for his own purposes. Well, I mean, I think we can segue right into literature worst mm. on that. I mean, talk about a recipe of almost a recipe for disaster. <laughs> yeah, a recipe for disaster and also a recipe for something wonderful. So this was a, a series of works that wrote made beginning in 1961, and he made them for almost 10 years. And the idea was kind of to reimagine the library as a butcher's window. And that butcher's window would be filled with sausages of all shapes and kinds. But all of the sausages were made out of books. And instead of having a label on the front that would say, you know, Prosciutto di Parma, it was, in fact, the title page from the book he had used. So to do these, he had assembled all of these recipes. And they're actual printed recipes for, you know, Italian pepper sausage and... When you look at them, they call for, you know, freshly cracked pepper and fennel and red pepper flakes and chili powder, all of the things that any sausage recipe might call for, gelatin, fat. But when the recipe called for a pound of ground pork, he would substitute a pound of ground book. And he sometimes specified a fresh book or a tender book (laughs) or a fat book. So, I mean, he really was thinking about this and he'd mix, he'd grind the book into pulp mix it all together with the other ingredients, and then stuff them into sausage casings. And as I mentioned, the the label would then be the title page from the book that he used. 
I mentioned that Rote was a frustrated poet. He started writing his own poems at 13 and kind of hit a, a long period of writer's block for a while. But he was someone who was absolutely fed by literature. He was a reader. He was a writer himself. And so I think in these objects, there's something really beautiful about the commingling of the idea of reading as a kind of intellectual and spiritual nourishment and sausage as yeah. a kind of physical nourishment. But I mean, this is where the envy and jealousy and oh, that's the gosh. recipe for disaster, self-disaster that a lot of his projects from there on out seem to um, chide those that were more successful. And I air quote that because his definition of successful was different than ours. Or it, it was. I mean, there were these figures out there in the world and he had said, you know, I always wanted to be a bigger fish among big fishes. Is that the plural? Um, <laughs> But he didn't really have the temperament for it. As we've said, he was a little bit of a prickly guy. He was complicated. Book down. He, um, and had this, had this thing, if you were more successful than him, he somehow had to hate you for it. So the authors that he used in a number of these volumes were authors that he somehow felt he was kind of getting back at in some way by grinding them into mincemeat. So you've got Hegel, you've got Schiller, you've got Robert F. Kennedy, got like a whole gamut and then ad- in addition to that he also used a number of newspapers and magazines things that he thought were kind of like daily junk fodder in particular um the uh the london daily tabloid the daily mirror which he had kind of ground up um in several projects but really couldn't stand this kind of like cheap cheesy tabloid journalism but he had worked in fact at an advertising agency as a young man And while he was there, he developed this um, little maxim that power is equal to quantity, not to quality. Because he realized at the ad agency, you get power not from the number of Pulitzers you win, but the number, what your circulation is, the number of ad pages you've got. And so throughout his life, he had this idea about quantity, about getting his message out there in quantity. Um, And I think all of the work that he was doing with books, with prints, with multiples was part of that. The idea that you make a lot of things and they go out into the world much more broadly than any single object But it's so funny that that object he chose, uh, the Liverwurst, uh, Literwurst, uh, book sausages, were something that are so DIY, so craft, and yeah. don't feel mass-produced. I mean, if you went ahead and you know did hot dogs, or, or not to say that all hot dogs are mass-produced, but he picked something that was so handicraft or so hands-on uh, that it almost felt like an antithesis of... That argument, at a sense. I think that's true. And when you look at them, theoretically, he made 50 of them. Almost all of them come in. They're like real sausages. They're different sizes. They're they're different shapes. And Um, they've held up for how many years, too? I know. Since the 60s. It's pretty incredible. Um, Yeah. They're pretty marvelous. Yeah. Marvelous objects. So we're going to take a quick break because this is also the point where things start decaying yeah literally and figuratively for Dieter wrote you've been listening to the food scene on heritage network.org we'll be right back hi i'm steve jenkins from fairway markets 
I've devoted my idiot career to the old ways, the old recipes, the old tools, the old geography of where serious foods come from for centuries. And I've strived to make these wonderful things available to New Yorkers for 37 years. So it's a fait accompli for us to support Heritage Radio Network. And I hope you will too, and I hope you'll keep tuning in. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Michael Harlan Turkel here today with Sarah Suzuki talking about the man Dieter Rote. Um, left off at decay. Very fitting because right next to the sausages were these cheese printings. Mm-hmm. First of all, I hope he owned that printing press because <laughs> the idea of passing cheese through that and he didn't really care about uh, the things that he worked with, the actual you know, uh, processes, the presses, because he was willing to experiment with anything, wasn't he? He absolutely was. And that goes back to that idea of you take the expertise and then you kind of hammer it into the ground for a totally different purpose. But this also goes back to the thing I was saying about really reinventing what you could do with these mediums. So a traditional etching, for example, you've got a metal plate, you scratch into it, you ink it, and you send it through the printing press. Rote invented what he called pressings and squashings, and these were formats that used organic material. It's like a juicing diet. (laughs) It's like a a blueprint. Yeah. Yeah. Um, In which he would send, for example, a slice of sausage or a piece of cheese through the printing press, and, and the pressure that's exerted as it goes through would kind of start to force the oils out, start to force the fat out, and he would encase them in these plastic envelopes, and then... Over the ensuing years, like 40 years at this point, they all start to decay and break down and, you know, the creates these kind of halos of grease and oil and they become these really beautiful kind of abstract natural landscapes. But Dieter was really into decay. That was absolutely one of the things that was at the heart of what he did. And he said at a certain point that art, like man himself, should change, grow old, and die. So he really embraced this idea that once an object was made, it would go out into the world and have a life all of its own. With a quote like that, you would never want to like get him upset in a bar at night because the way he could like point that finger at you and say something so harmful, the next day be, ah, oh, I was only kidding. Well, it's funny that you say that. There's a lot of back and forth, yeah. and one of the things that I think makes Dieter such a challenge is the way that he kind of undermined his own reputation. He undermined his own um, market. He would give two dealers, art dealers, for example, in different cities totally different information, different prices about the same work of art. And in fact, I had the great pleasure of walking through the show the other day with um, 
this great graphic designer, Malcolm Greer, who is still at RISD and was at RISD when Dieter was there and was talking about an assignment Rote gave to his RISD class. And someone had said to Rote, is it okay if we use glue in the assignment? And Rote was like, yeah, yeah, okay, the glue, this is fine. And then someone, they kept walking around and another student said, Dieter, we're not supposed to use glue, right? And Dieter said, yeah, no glue. <laughs> and, and Malcolm Greer said to him, you, you realize that you just kind of gave those two kids totally different answers. And he was like, yep, that's okay. That's how it's going to be. Well, well, I mean, it's also the way you experience something that's decaying. Uh, because I, I didn't find any documentation of him actually taking, him personally, taking pictures of what something looked like from year one to year two to year three. Because it was a singular piece of work at that point, And that lived in a, you know lifespan but then he moved on to starting to do more additions mm-hmm. um well i i want to jump ahead to the bunny dropping bunny but i know okay. we're not there yet um but he, he started experimenting from a singular form to mm-hmm. a larger scale of production form. yeah why is that well i think that goes back to this idea oh. that power is quantity the idea that you could get your message out more broadly Um, with an object that existed in multiple than you could with a single object. And in fact, those kind of things went hand in hand. I mean, even in the 50s when he started making the artist books, you know, the plan was often to make 30 or 50, whether he ever actually got through making all 30, because those were totally handmade things. That's another question. But the the idea was always there to kind of get the message out. Yeah, well... We've already had a little bit of charcuterie. We've had some cheese. Let, let's have a little bit of chocolate. We move on um, to dessert. The first piece that was actually chocolate that I saw was next to the sausages. This large structure. I think there was steel involved too. Giant poured painting almost ah, on yes. the wall. Basel on the Rhine. What was that? Basel on the Rhine. Do you, do you have a lot of people walking through this exhibition going like, what is that? Kind of. I love that. It's beautiful because it's very minimal looking. It's kind of this brown square on the wall. Um, so it has this very cool look about it, which is very much in fitting with what was happening with kind of the minimalist artists, minimalist um, artists in the 1960s. But when you look closer, you look at the label. Um, it's actually a square of poured chocolate. It's very heavy, in fact, because the chocolate is quite dense. Um, and it has a title. The title is Basel on the Rhine. Basel was one of the many cities in which Rote lived and worked over the course of his lifetime. And he had said once that nature is like an abstract painting. And I think in a way, funny way, this is the kind of epitome of that. It's this totally abstract square, but once you see the title, you start to think of those kind of churning brown waters of the river <laughs> Rhine, and all of a sudden you're in a totally different place. Um, but Rote had a long and, and complicated love affair with chocolate as a material, that is for sure. Yeah, well, I mean, talk about becoming a master of his craft. Well, this is one of the things I, I think is really interesting about Rote, is that oftentimes when you see something, it comes off as a little bit haphazard, a little bit chaotic, but... He's really, the DNA is quite Swiss. There's always some sort of structure, really, underlying control underneath that chaos. And I think his work with chocolate is a great example because, as we've talked about, the idea was for it to break down, for it to decay. That was totally fine with him. That was its, you know, life. That's what it was going to be. But he started with a method to the madness. And, in fact, he did an internship at Lint. Um, the chocolate factory in Switzerland because he wanted to be able to know 
how am I supposed to handle chocolate if I'm doing it and I'm doing it right? And of course, we both know <laughs> that if you work with chocolate, you have to temper it, you have to treat it right. It depends. It you know it'll vary the size of the crystal structure, all of this kind you of stuff. Want it to bloom exactly yeah. right. And so he really wanted to know how to handle it properly, how to handle it the way a master would. Again, that expertise then goes into the making of you know a little bit of a mess, something that's intended to break down, but. Um, he was really serious about about knowing all of those aspects of the craft. Then we move on to portrait of an artist as a bird food bust, bird yes. food head. Vogel food or booster. Vogel food or booster. Uh-huh. Oh, I love that. Isn't that good? Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. But th- this, again, was moving from a singular to mass-produced. Yeah. Why did he want to make so many busts and put those out in the world? Well, this is probably my favorite object in the show, and it's just a little self-portrait bust. It's probably about six inches tall. And as you said, it's Portrait of the Artist as a Bird Food Head, and the title is a reference to James Joyce, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. And Joyce was absolutely one of those guys he revered and despised <laughs> simultaneously. There are little references to Joyce peppered throughout um, throughout the work. But instead of being the portrait of the artist as a young man, it's a self-portrait of Rote as an old man. And rather than being a bust that's intended to commemorate the artist's contribution throughout history made of marble lasting forever, Rote made his in a combination of chocolate and birdseed. And he cast it, this little six-inch bust, and the idea for him was that you'd put it out in your garden. And whatever lived there, birds, squirrels, foxes, raccoons, would come and kind of eat at the self-portrait until it was a little pile of chocolate dust. And I think there's something really wonderful about that idea of, um, you know, this kind of self-deprecating take on the artist's lasting importance. And the title is, is there in the show, Wait Later, This Will Be Nothing, which is a quote of Dieter's. But I think really sums up the whole attitude, the idea that this, he knew the work wouldn't last forever. He knew he wouldn't last forever, and he was okay with that. It was all part of um, of the story that he was writing. But that idea is still present, right? Even though it's going to break down, he's still going to make 30 of them. He's still going to send that out into the world with the hopes that that message, that image, that idea gets out to people. Well, he almost wanted to break the cycle of something. Um, which was funny because I actually thought you said self-defecating for a second um, when you self def But, but it only it works very well to my point that there is the bunny dropping bunny. Yes. And that is ultimately a, a project where the cycles are closed. Absolutely. That is a brilliant example. It took 150 episodes to have one. So okay, well, listening. there it is. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the bunny dropping bunny is, a, is from 1968. It's a pretty brilliant object. It's a... It looks like a big chocolate Easter bunny, you know, like the lint-shaped chocolate rabbit, um, and it's brown. But as you look closer and you read the label, you see that the bunny is not made of chocolate, but rather is made out of a combination of bunny food, which is straw, and bunny droppings. So you have kind of the ingestion-digestion cycle all holistically presented in this one <laughs> adorable little dried-out bunny shape. As a big F you to Joseph Boys. That is my reading of it, yes. Um, you know, Boyce was, Boyce really was the big fish among bigger fish, which is what Rote wanted to be, but couldn't really get there. Their temperaments were so different. And his jealousy of Boyce was intense. Of course, Boyce was using the hair as one of his, you know, favorite motifs. Um, and in 1968, Boyce had gotten Rote a job teaching in Dusseldorf. So he's 
in Dusseldorf watching Boyce be a hero while Rote is kind of stuck in this sad hand-to-mouth existence. And what does he do? He makes this this little sculptural form which refers to Boyce, the hare, his bunny, but it as if he's saying, this hare is full of shit. Joseph Boyce, take that. Amazing. So that's, that's my reading. And there are other little um, incidents, certainly, that back up the kind of contentious... Although perhaps one directionally, you need directionally contentious relationship between Rote and Boyce. But um, I think that connection is definitely there. Yeah. There's more chocolate in his life, too. There's gnomes, garden gnomes buried Mm -hmm. in chocolate. There uh, uh, is the family bath, Mm -hmm. which was these trays done by multiple artists, right? Yes. Um, And he, he kind of like submerged literal uh, small figurines Little of a plastic family. family. But the coolest thing about those is that there is an outside decay. Um, mm-hmm. That there are little paths that you see little creatures much have lived. It looks like to- Mars. Totally beautiful. You get this really great micro-macro experience with those things and with some of the other things we've talked about with the Basel on the Rhine, with the portrait of the artist as a bird food head. Those objects have all become sites for all of the various bugs and tiny vermin that have kind of moved in, eaten, and then moved back out over the, the course of their and own life cycle. Don't you get complaints every once in a while that there are little bugs in, in whatever hermetically sealed We do, it? we do. The museum's objects are pretty much bug-free, but I do have a number of objects on loan, which, you know, the philosophy is slightly different, and so you will sometimes see little bug carcasses. What we have in the work that you mentioned, though, the family bath, which is kind of this flat, small flat tray filled with chocolate, is these beautiful trails, as you said, of the bugs that kind of came up and then ate their way through. So it's almost like looking at some aerial view of like a mountain road with all of these little paths um, eaten through it. And we're always super careful when we move it to keep it really flat so that we don't disrupt that hard work of whatever little vermin took the time to eat their way through well, those. it's the hard work of time, too. We talked yeah. about decay, but mold is such a big aspect of a lot of his work. Uh, I mean, he has a mold museum, almost, uh, yes. devoted to him. But let's, let's talk about the pocket room. The pocket room. The pocket room is a brilliant thing. Pocket room, talk about something that was made in an addition. The pocket room was intended to be unlimited in the number of examples that could be made. And it was a super modest little thing, very inexpensive. It was just a little like plastic playing card case. That's where the idea of the pocket comes from. He, he thought you could keep it like in your pant pocket or your jacket pocket. And inside is a still life, but it's not a classical still life like Dutch vanitas, tulips, lemon peel. Um, it's just a little rubber stamp of a table. And on the table is an actual slice of banana. And so every example that you see, the banana has rotted to a different degree depending on the conditions it's it's been kept and the year in which it was made and all of that kind of stuff. So you get this beautiful layout of all of these little kind of rotting, moldy banana slices. Some of them are green. Some of them are covered in white fuzz. Some of them are reduced to just these kind of dark smudges now. But, um, you know, again, another illustration of that idea that, you know, later this will be nothing. Mold again, the Mold Museum. Mm-hmm. This is a slightly humid environment. Where, where is it located? The, the actual Rote well, Foundation. Well, the Rote Foundation is in Hamburg, which is a be- absolutely beautiful, very scenic city with a gorgeous lake in Germany. Um, and Rote had something that was called the Schimmel Museum, the Mold Museum, which was eventually more or less 
condemned by the neighbors who are not <laughs> that nuts about the idea of living next to this thing in this very kind of tony neighborhood. But what remains of the Mold Museum is now in the basement of um, a law office in Hamburg. And it's this beautiful, white, very clean, minimal structure, you know, concrete and glass. And you go down to the basement, and as you go down the stairs, you pass a couple of rotes, um, gnomes in chocolate. And you get down there, and there's like a vault, bank vault door, which opens, and the door swings open, like a big swarm of flies comes out. Because inside is the remains of this museum. It's all of these pieces that Rote made out of sugar and chocolate they're just kind of left now in this vault to have their lifespan run out. And so things are covered in, you know, maggots and worms and little frass fly casings and things like that. It's a it's a pretty incredible experience to walk in there. You definitely want to hose your shoes off after you're <laughs> there. But to go into this beautiful little corporate structure and then find in the basement this total mess is pretty wild. The only one complaint I had about the MoMA show is while we were taking the tour, you described the smell yeah. of something. Yeah. And you don't really get to have that interaction, maybe for the better, <laughs> um, with Rhodes' work. Mm. But can you explain to me what that mold museum smells like and what chocolate from the 70s well, might... Well, might... it, once you smell it, it's not something you forget, I have to say. It's not necessarily... Did I tell you the story about my dog? You did tell me the story. Am I, do you want me to tell it again? Please All right. do. When I was little... My mother bought my sister one year for Christmas this like um, lollipop, chocolate lollipop making kit, which came with powdered chocolate. And the idea was you mix it together, you put it into molds, and then after it hardened, you'd have these great shaped chocolate lollipops. We put it out on the porch. My dog got into it, chewed through the box, ate all of the chocolate powder, and proceeded to obviously vomit it all over the carpeted (laughs) stairs in the hallway of the house. That is what chocolate from... (laughs) The 60s and 70s smells like. It has like a really bad, sickly sweet smell to it that I will always forever associate with my West Highland Terrier Phoebe and that time she ate the whole lollipop making kit. But it makes me wonder, you know, Dieter couldn't have been all that bad. Did he want people to experience his work in a way that he, you know, they thought it was off-putting? Or did he want to be endeared? No, I think the thing, well, I mean, you think about chocolate as a material. I mean, chocolate is kind of a, it's a little bit of a Janus, right? Because it's got, when it's melted, it kind of looks like, you know, mucky, gross. But what makes people happier than chocolate? I mean, we were talking the other day about um, the idea, you know, that chocolate has endorphins. It, you know, literally, physically can make you feel happiness. So I think someone who worked this intensely with a material like that and who understood the pleasure of food, let's face it, of not only sausage and cheese, but chocolate, these are all delicious things. There was absolutely a desire for, for pleasure to be found in that work. Up until June 24th, you're also giving a couple lectures in the next week or so. Yep. One coming up on June 24th. That's the last one, actually. Excellent. Well, if you haven't been, go see Dieter Roth. If you're in Hamburg, stop by the law office and check out the Mold Museum. Sarah, thank you so much for being on. Thanks for having Happy me. Happy 150th episode of the Happy 150th episode. And to 150 more. Cheers. Excellent. Thank you again for listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. 
You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Ding, 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 ding.